dirty bird. How could you? She can't be dead. Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Annie, in 1871, women often died in childbirth. But her spirit is the important thing, and Misery's spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! No! I didn't. Who did? No one. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away! You did it! 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 You murdered my misery! Annie! Annie. I thought you were good, Paul. But you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie. And I don't think I better be around you for a while. Don't even think about anybody coming for you. Not the doctors, not your agent, not your family, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 351, Misery. Ladies and gentlemen, we just experienced the shortest pre-show that's ever happened in the history of this show. 20 minutes. That's right. Yeah. Right to business. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting hours back in our lives, people. It's usually you who won't stop talking. Yeah, I know. Just telling me about all these... Well, I think there's Painful like things going on. I do blame myself a little bit because I always think there's a moment where you are about to be like, "All right, let's do this," and I'm just like, "Yeah, but one more thing." <laughs> no, yeah, we've both about. done yeah, it. Yeah. I probably am way more to blame, obviously, but yeah, there are definitely been times where that's happened. <laughs> anyway, happy Thanksgiving. Oh, we yeah. are just dumping episode after episode onto your heads. At some point. We got to make hay. It will probably slow down again, hopefully for my sake. But in the meantime, we try to put out episodes on Thanksgiving. What better way to kick off winter, really, than the horror classic? Yeah. One of the, I don't know, iconic horror films of the early 90s? It has a unique vibe to it. I wrote down it's kind of a a whimsical thriller. (laughs) They're using words like oogie. (laughs) Well, that's her character. Yeah, I know. She's supposed to be like a very specific type of person Mm -hmm. i don't think the whole world is talking like that but yeah it is rob reiner somebody you wouldn't associate with directing horror thriller i feel like he definitely brings his flair to it which kind of 
results in this unique blend. Anyway, before we jump into Misery, which I do have a lot written for, let's very quickly run through all of our information. I think pretty much starting next week, I'm going to be driving Matt and everyone crazy because we are in the home stretch, and I'm going to be hammering it every time Hmm. we're talking. Okay. The prices are going up at the end of the year for the listener requests. We just got another one in. I think we have about seven slots left. I will be hammering that every single time in detail as we get closer and closer to the end of the year because that is the deadline for the price. And as we've talked about plenty of times, it's very complicated. But there will be less slots once we get to next year than there are now. Right. I'm not going to explain that all again, but there will be less of them. So if you have anything you'd like us to cover on the show, now's the time to reach out. Where can you do that? At GreatestPod on X slash Twitter. Also via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. You can also request a free sticker, and we'll send that out to you. Most importantly, though, beyond all of communication and listener requests and everything else, please make sure you're subscribed to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you're finding us. Never miss an episode because 2023 has definitely been one for the books. We've had a ton of episodes, and they all come out on different days. So being subscribed is crucial, I think. Yeah. Because there are podcasts that I listen to sometimes and I'm not subscribed and I do occasionally miss things and then it's hard to get caught up, especially since our episodes are very long. Yeah, it's hard for me to relate. I don't think I've been subscribed to a podcast in like eight years. You're not even subscribed to ours? I am subscribed to ours. I take that back. (laughs) I've only been subscribed to one podcast for the past eight years. Okay. And the day that it gets released is, if I see it hit the feed, whatever day it is, it's a nice surprise. Like, I know that we recorded something, but I don't know when it's coming. Right, yeah. Even though I do tell you every <laughs> single time what the plan is. Well, I'm not sweating the details. Let's get into Misery, a nice little comeback for Greatest October. But this one was always on the schedule for a late November vibe. Absolutely. 1990, directed by Rob Reiner. We talked about this probably in either the Stand By Me or the Princess Bride episodes, but I think it's worth going through this all one more time because... Your favorite director does not have a run as good as Rob Reiner. Yeah, I know. And that will shock you. Yeah, right. This is a crazy run of movies that are not only great, but are also very successful financially and at the Academy Awards sometimes. This was a big-time filmmaker, and he never really gets treated like that Not only not treated, I kind of feel like people scoff at him a little bit. He's made a lot of films since his good ones. Now, if you go on IMDb, most of them are probably between... 6 to 7.5 rated a lot of them some of them you know are complete duds obviously mm-hmm. starting in 84 this is spinal tap so oh, you right. have this documentary style comedy that is one of the all-time classics christopher guest picks up that style he's in the film obviously then makes it his own right right the next thing the short thing 85 classic teen comedy but also coming of age stand by me you uh-huh. don't get more coming of age Reiner's first collaboration with Stephen King material. That's the very next year, 86. Probably one of my all-time favorites. The Princess Bride, 1987. Also a great one. When Harry Met Sally, 1989. I feel like that's the one that's most associated with him. That's like his... That was a huge movie. Yeah, yeah. It was very popular. And in that film, Harry is seen reading the paperback for Misery. Okay. little Easter egg. Then he has Misery in 90, so then he goes from rom-com to horror. Right. And then in 1992, A Few Good Men. Wow. A Few Good Men, all sorts of critical acclaim. Yeah. 
Screenplay of Misery by William Goldman, the legend. He also wrote The Princess Bride, if you mm-hmm. remember. Based on the 1987 novel of the same name by Stephen King. And this is one of King's preferred adaptations. He really loves it, particularly Kathy Bates' performance, which we'll talk about later. I didn't make it all the way through, but I did watch this with Rob Reiner's commentary. Mm-hmm. And one of his notes on it was, I guess no one had optioned Misery. He was like, it's really weird because most of Stephen King's work was like optioned before it was even out, before the novel. Yeah, was because even King out. didn't want to give it to him. Yeah, so or anyone. Right, he didn't want to give it to anybody, but he he liked Stand by Me and was like, the only way I'll do it is if because it was him and his business partner, and he was like, the only way I'll do it is if Rob Reiner is either directing or producing the movie. Yeah. So exactly. I thought that was a cool note. Misery did pretty well. It drew $61.3 million at the box office on a $20 million budget. The film was also nominated for one Academy Award, which Kathy Bates won for Best Actress for her performance as Annie Wilkes. Misery is the only film based on a Stephen King novel to win any Oscar. How about that? That's shocking, really. Is it, though? Because horror is so underdeveloped the big well, one i think about the sh- big one is the Shawshank right, Redemption, know, which yeah. is insane yeah but everybody was really in love with forrest gump that year mm-hmm. in 1991 kathy bates became the first woman to win an oscar for best actress in a horror film or thriller film the first performer to win an oscar for a horror film was frederick march for his performance as the title character in dr jekyll and mr hyde The only other winners for acting in a horror film were Ruth Gordon for her performance as Mia Farrow's neighbor with a hidden agenda in Rosemary's Baby, which was a supporting actress, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster for Best Actor and Actress in The Silence of the Lambs, Mm -hmm. and Natalie Portman for Best Actress in Black Swan. It's a good list, even if it's a short one. (laughs) I came up with a little gimmick to do for this episode, as I've been trying to do. And then once I sent it to you and you said, yeah, that, that's cool, let's do that, I realized we might have the same five, or very close. But yeah, let's do it anyway. And okay. then I have a couple honorable mentions, and I think that's a little more interesting because I think these five we already did on the show, my five. Okay. Which I guess makes sense since yeah, I'm yeah, picking yeah. the episodes most of the time. Uh-huh. But it's very close because- Yeah, I would think- I thought about- Four or five. I thought of including Misery because I do love this movie so much. Yeah, yeah. And I think performance-wise, it might be one of the best in any Stephen King movies, but it didn't quite make it. So what we wanted to do was give our top five Stephen King film adaptations theatrical only. So that means no Stephen King's It from 1990 or a plethora of others. And we were just primarily focusing on films that were directly adapted from either one of King's novels or one of his short stories. In case any of you were wondering why our beloved 1990 Stephen King's It wasn't on either of our lists. Mine are Pet Cemetery from 1989, mm-hmm. Carrie from 1976. Yep. <laughs> Meanwhile, yours are Pet Cemetery 2018, well, so far the- Carrie 2013. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well... I don't want to spoil here, but the first two I have written down, Pet Cemetery and Carrie. God, are you going in chronological order? Or are you just... No. Okay. Because I didn't go in any order. I just wrote down what came to mind first. And the first two were Pet Cemetery and Carrie. The Shining. Yes. 
which was the film that inspired Reiner to want to adapt a Stephen uh-huh. King work, and then he ended up doing two. Yeah. Stand By Me. That's Rob next Reiner, on my list. And The Shawshank Redemption, which was directed by Darabont. Yeah, so people will probably think this is a, an absolute disgrace, but I don't have Shawshank Redemption on my list, and I actually have Misery in place of. Mostly because I do think Shawshank is a great movie, but it, if I'd rather watch Misery. That's fair. I think I still have a lot of nostalgia for The Shawshank Redemption. It was a big movie oh, in yeah. college for me uh, right. and people that you know that we're still friends with. I think most people, Stephen King fan or not, would say that Shawshank is number one with a bullet. Maybe, maybe the most. I don't think yeah. it'd be a huge majority. It might have the most votes, but yeah. okay. I don't know that it would Fair be enough. like 70% or anything. It might be like 20%, and then the rest are all sprinkled yeah, throughout yeah. all the different ones. I mean, I just hear a lot of people say Shawshank Redemption is their favorite movie, period. That's true, but yeah. then again, those people might not even realize it's a well, Stephen King true. adaptation. Yeah. So then to say, it's my favorite Stephen King adaptation, but you don't really have any context for it because you don't care about horror or yeah, something, yeah, it yeah. doesn't mean as much to me. True. My honorable mentions are Misery, 1408 from 2007. That's a good one. I I do like that movie, and I did think about it. I thought I would be laughed out of the apartment if I put that on my list, but (laughs) not that I was really that close to it, but it did cross my mind for a second. And The Mist, Uh which was also directed by Darabont. Memorable for having the most grim ending in the history of film. (laughs) And also memorable because we're probably going to do it next year. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, memorable for that. Okay, it was a little bit of an experiment. I thought... At That's first, hilarious. that it was a good idea, but then, yeah, dude, as soon as I sent you that link, I was like, "We're gonna have the same ones." I knew, I knew we would. It doesn't surprise me that it's the same ones. It is hilarious that the first four written down are in the same order. Well, yeah, that is weird. Yeah, as Matt mentioned, King was initially reluctant to sell the film rights to Misery because he was skeptical that a Hollywood studio would make a movie faithful to his vision, but. Since Stand By Me was such a home run in King's eyes, then he felt comfortable giving it to Reiner. Yeah, and I think much like, I mean, I'm sure he would say a lot of his work, but this is a very personal story to him in a way that I think The Shining was as well. Yeah. A lot of horror stories with him and his feelings towards that movie and how that was portrayed. So I really think this was, as discussed, not one easily given up by him. Stephen King had originally planned to release the novel under his pseudonym, Richard Bachman. While writing it, however, it was discovered that King was Bachman. (laughs) King subsequently published the novel under his real name and announced that Bachman had died from cancer of the pseudonym. King would revive the pseudonym in 96 and in 07, publishing two more Bachman books posthumously, (laughs) quote-unquote. The first was The Regulators, and the second was Blaze. The weird thing about the Bachman books was they always felt kind of inferior to me. Now... I know what you're thinking. Oh, because they're associated with Bachman, maybe that's what is in your head and you're just separating them. No, I didn't even know that that was a thing when I was reading a lot of them because that all happened before I was old enough to know about Stephen King books or read them yeah, or really. pay any attention to that kind of stuff. I don't really know about this. Well, he just wanted this to see if he could, yeah. if people were buying his book because of his name or mm-hmm. because they thought they were good. So he just published a bunch of books under a different name, including like Thinner was okay. one. Oh, okay, yeah. I can't remember. I don't know. A lot of them are more not centered in Maine, obviously. Uh-huh. That would have been a dead giveaway. Yeah. But there's still a lot of stuff in them where it didn't take readers too long to start getting suspicious, and then someone finally outed him. But Misery seems like 
a Hall of Fame Stephen King book, and it is weird that he was going to do the pseudonym on this one. I don't know. Yeah, no. It was producer Andrew Scheinman who read King's novel Misery on an airplane and then brought it to his director partner at Castle Rock Entertainment, Rob Reiner. Reiner eventually invited William Goldman to write the film's screenplay, having collaborated recently on The Princess Bride. Reiner was questioned before heading into production if this was really the right project for him, as his background was mostly comedy up to this point. He stated, It's important for me to find my way into the film, and as you will see, the movie's really about a man who is trapped by his own success and is desperately trying to break out and establish himself in a different way. I felt very much those feelings when I finished All in the Family. Reiner studied Hitchcock movies to figure out how to shoot a thriller watching every Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. Reiner had Hitchcock on the brain so much that James Caan overheard Reiner chastising himself one day on set, asking himself, who do you think you are, Alfred Hitchcock? Well, it may be blasphemy, but I honestly think this is as good as a Hitchcock movie. Is it as good as his best? No. But if Hitchcock had... Bit still been alive in 1990, and this was one of his films. I honestly don't think that people would be too surprised by it. Oh, that. sure, yeah. Now, granted, he would put in his own flares, right, and he right. would be in it at one point, and all those different things that he does. Yeah. And some of the shots would look different and whatever. But if he had made a movie with this story, and generally these yeah. actors and different things, I think people would have bought that. No, and I watched it. Without knowing that, he also talks about that in the director's commentary. But there were parts in the house, shots like going up the stairs and everything, that was reminding me of Psycho. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, on second view, you start noticing more and more. But yeah, a lot of these... uh, I guess the major difference would be like Annie Wilkes would be played by, I don't know, who was the hot skinny blonde? (laughs) Madonna in 1990? (laughs) Well, that was the thing. This was almost turned into a, a Broadway show first, and they wanted to cast... Julia Roberts, who was huge mm-hmm. in that era, and Stephen King was like, what the fuck are you talking yeah. about? She's supposed to be able to pick this guy up and carry him around. Well, and Reiner does elaborate a little further on his whole experience leaving All in the Family, because he, he kind of commented on, it's not that weird now for people to like work on a TV show and then break out further into movies and not just like actors, people that go on to write and direct. Right, yeah. And, but he was like, back then, that was like unheard of. Well, yeah, you definitely got pigeonholed a lot faster yeah. for famous roles. One place to start, I think, with this movie is I just love the poster and the cover art. Absolutely. It evokes a very specific feeling where it's cozy, but with the right amount of foreboding. Exactly. Yeah, I, ha- I have that Kino Lorber 4K that I see sitting over there. And it, yeah, like, like I could just prop that up and look at it, <laughs> just be mesmerized. After directing Stand By Me, Reiner forms a company called Castle Rock Entertainment. Misery is actually the first film featured by this company, and it's named for the small town appearing in Stand By Me, and it is also featured in several other stories by Stephen King. The novel this is based on, however, has more connections to a neighboring town in his fictional universe, Derry. As a child, Paul Sheldon was friends with Eddie Kasprak, who moved to Boston after the events in It. Misery takes place in the fictional town of Sidewinder, Colorado, near the Overlook Hotel, the setting of The Shining. The characters of Dick Halloran, Scatman Carruthers, also served in the army with the father of Mike Hanlon, another character from It. Oh, look at all that. It's It's not a huge part of King's writing, but yeah, there are a lot of connective things in his books where references 
to uh, characters from other books, references to towns from other books, incidents from other stories, things like that. Even that one about the assassination of JFK, oh, yeah. 11-22-63, that has like a big part where the main character ends up in Derry in the 50s or something and interacts with Bev and... Oh, really? Richie, I think, oh, or something I love like it. that. Yeah, briefly. It's not like a big part of the book, but... He throws those little references in there. Just like fighting a murderous killer clown. I can't remember if it's supposed to be before or after when exactly the yeah, events yeah. of it are in relation to the that book. Is it before or after all that business that happened down in the Barrens? <laughs> Speaking of Castle Rock, the Hulu original series of the same name dedicated season two to being a prequel to Misery, focusing on a young Annie Wilkes portrayed by Lizzie Kaplan, yeah. which I have not watched. Yeah, me neither. And the reason I didn't was because ultimately I found the first season of Castle Rock kind of underwhelming by the end and yeah. wasn't super interested, but I have heard that the second season was great and a lot of people were disappointed that it was canceled. No, I love the idea. I just, I'm with you. I couldn't really stick with it. Well, the first season didn't really seem to have a point mm-hmm. by the end of it. I was confused as to even what was going on or why we were supposed to care, but I think the second one from what I understand, was more focused on one specific thing. Famed novelist Paul Sheldon, played by James Kahn, finds himself at a turning point in his career. Though having massive success with a series of Victorian romance novels, Paul isn't exactly content with his career. Through flashback with his agent Marcia, played by screen legend Lauren Bacall, back in New York City, we learn that Paul has killed off the popular character at the center of his novels, Misery Chastain in the hope of focusing on more serious stories. At first blush, for many people in the year of our Lord 2023, they may not really understand what any of that means. Wait, the character's name is Misery? But actually, in the 1800s, especially amongst enslaved or certain areas in the South, Misery was actually a name. And it's pretty on the nose, but I liked the double meanings when they would say things like here's to misery and they're toasting and stuff like that. (laughs) I know it was a little heavy handed because it's so obvious, but I still thought it was funny. Let's talk about Jimmy Kahn a bit. The part of Paul Sheldon was originally offered to fucking everybody that ever existed. I heard him fire off a bunch of names. Oh, there's a million. William Hurt twice. Then Kevin Klein. Michael Douglas. Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, but they all turned it down. He said Warren Beatty, too. Warren Beatty was interested in the role, wanting to turn him into a less passive character, but eventually had to drop out as post-production of Dick Tracy extended. Hmm. Eventually, someone suggested James Caan, who agreed to play the part. Caan commented that he was attracted by how Sheldon was a role unlike any of his others, and that being a totally reactionary character is really much tougher. So yeah, most of the time, Khan is that tough guy, maybe street smart, but not particularly intellectual. I think the idea of him being a writer seems strange. And he has a very active persona in the frame. Yes. He's buzzing when he's on screen. Right. He's moving. He's moving his hands when he talks. He's getting in your face. And this is not that, because he can't. It's almost I know. Well, it's a cruel funny. torture. The part that seems the most natural is when he's lifting the typewriter up, doing the arm exercises. Yeah. I, I'm like, this is James Conn most at ease in this role. 
Warren Beatty was involved briefly while they were developing the script and helped them close some possible plot holes in regard to Paul's efforts to escape. He said, pretend that it's me, Warren Beatty, an intelligent person trapped in the bed. I would think of every possible way to get out of the house. From there, they worked through various possibilities and then made sure to block off those options for Paul. According to Goldman, Beatty left them hanging forever and has never officially turned it down. <laughs> he just <laughs> never really responded. I guess he ghosted them at a certain point. Hilarious. Jack Nicholson, of course, was also approached, because why wouldn't he be? But he turned it down because he didn't want to do another Stephen King adaptation, having already done The Shining. Coincidentally, Khan had turned down the lead in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which also featured a compromised man at the mercy of a disturbed nurse. Yeah, I know. There is some parallels there. I love this role for Khan. He certainly needed it at the time. It's not like the 80s were a good time for him. Now it's one of those things where you can't imagine anyone else being this guy. Uh, That's what Rob Reiner said, too. Yeah. I think in a weird way, and I don't want to speak for James Khan, who's no longer with us, but you have to imagine that after his success with multiple films in the 70s that the 80s was a little bit of a humbling time and a lot of those major actors turned this role down because they recognized that Annie is the star right she's the dominant figure in the movie she gets to do all of the fun and that's stuff the, right that's the more eccentric role well yeah she gets to have the big moments he mm-hmm. just sits there he doesn't really react very much and a lot of other actors weren't comfortable with that because they're movie stars. They need to be the star. And I think that maybe Khan was just in the right position to take a part that he knew would be in a popular, successful film, even if it wasn't exactly a dream role or the most appropriate casting. Khan right. once showed up to set hungover and all of those scenes he shot that day were unusable. Oh, wow. If you told me he was hung over the whole movie, I'd have been like, yeah, that tracks. Reiner told Khan he had to do the scenes again because there was a problem at the lab. When Khan learned it had nothing to do with labs, he offered to cover the money he lost the studio. Paul finishes his novel at a mountain retreat in Colorado, a manuscript that he hopes will launch his post-misery career. While traveling from Silver Creek back to New York City, Paul is caught in a blizzard and loses control of his car on the snow-covered road and crashes down a slope into a wooded area, rendering him unconscious. However, he is soon found and rescued, pulled out of the car, and given mouth-to-mouth by a female good Samaritan. First of all, what the fuck with this car? Are you an idiot? Could he not just stay another day? These road conditions are insane. Him driving down that, like... he couldn't stay another day. Those roads were not never going to be clear. Okay, yeah. I don't know if you know what it's like in those mountains. Then get the, the those SUV. roads are getting I, I, I get the SUV. Or have That's what I mean. Yeah. He's Even if there wasn't a blizzard, mm-hmm. I don't know why he's speeding down a mountain in a 65 Mustang. What the fuck? I know. It's crazy. Did I ever tell the story on the show about the <laughs> road that I was in a car that slid off on ice on kind of mountainous terrain? No. Oh. Yeah, that was a wild time. Coming down a hill from a, a friend's house at a party. And one of my friends was driving, full car, five people, patch of ice, slides, tumbles down into like a little valley. But it's all in the woods and stuff. The car flipped multiple times. I'm in the back seat. I feel like I don't move at all. And then come to, and I'm like laying underneath the passenger seat. We're upside down. My friend Dave takes his seatbelt off and like falls down on top of me. Back window of the car just completely blown out. 
looking over to the driver and he's trying to elbow the window and then i just look back and people are crawling out the back and then we had to like climb up the mountain to get to the road everyone was completely fine but it was the most wild experience and i still kind of have ptsd over it and then kathy bates came out yeah and broke both my feet (laughs) (laughs) oh that's what's been going on with you all these years exactly that's why i waddle (laughs) clearly this woman who we don't know yet who has been bundled up is a big strong woman because she puts paul on her shoulders and carries him away to god knows where at this moment. i know it looks sort of comedic they do it in a good way that doesn't look wild but when you're thinking about this james con looks huge yeah he's a big guy <laughs> i don't know there weren't probably many candidates for the role of Annie Wilkes where you could make the carrying part as believable yeah. because some of the other people who were potentially in the mix, I just don't know how you do those scenes the same way. Who were those people? And the commentary, well, we'll he was like, it was always Kathy Bates. That's what they say, yeah. but it, that's bullshit. Okay. Be- it's not their decision. <laughs> <laughs> it's the studio. Yeah. No, there were other people. I saw that too because Goldman said that. Right. That's he's the one who wanted. suggested yeah. it, but there were tons of other people. Okay. And a lot of those people wouldn't have been able to do it. So I don't know how you write that then. Because you're going to have to change the whole thing where Put she comes out sled. to a sled or something. Yeah, yeah you have to like, like do everything differently. On a four-wheeler. And then... It's like you at a ski resort. If she's less formidable, then it makes the rest of the film not as suspenseful. Mm-hmm. Because there's a certain heft, let's say, to Kathy Bates where you're like, yeah, she could fuck this dude up at any point. He's injured the entire film. This would have been pre-weather app, and he later says that he didn't know that it was going to storm, but it all seems like kind of irresponsible behavior, though, because you're coming down from the mountains. You know it's getting close to wintertime. It's going to be crazy and everything. And This does seem like a death trap drive. Yeah. I don't know how high up he is, though, because when we get to the end of the film, we can talk about how long he's supposedly in captivity, and it isn't that long. I think it's supposed to be like four weeks. Whereas in the novel, it's much longer. Because I think in the novel, he's trying to get out of there before winter hits kind of a thing. And then he's stuck there, and then by the end of it, it's spring. There is this montage sequence where it's showing him by the window or whatever, and it's changing outside. It almost looks like years are going by. (laughs) Like winter, summer, winter, summer. No, I know that it's not, but it's almost like that's what it feels like that scene is implying. I'm your number one fan. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'll take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. Where? We're just outside Silver Creek. You've been here two days. You're gonna be okay. My name is Annie Wilkes. I'm a one fan. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm also a nurse. Here, take these. Turns out that Paul's savior is a nurse named Annie Wilkes, and she takes him back to her remote and secluded home. When Paul regains consciousness, he 
finds himself bedridden with broken legs and a dislocated shoulder, Annie knows who he is. In mm-hmm. fact, she tells him repeatedly that she is his, quote, number one fan. Oh. She simply cannot lavish him enough with praise and his novels and his writings. and She just calls him a genius. So it's a dream scenario, right? He could have easily died and doesn't. He gets rescued immediately by a nurse, of all people, who has tons of shit in her house to help him. And she's so excited that he's there. Yeah, that could be annoying, but it's better than somebody who thinks you suck, I guess. (laughs) Right? Or who's been, like, protesting your work and what you killed. (laughs) Well, then maybe they wouldn't have even taken him out. Well, they want him to die a slow, tortured death. Annie Wilkes is Stephen King's favorite written character because she was always surprising to him to write with unexpected depth and sympathy. And I think the portrayal of Annie in this film is something that we'll talk about as we go, because it's fascinating to hear Goldman and Reiner talk about decisions that were made in the hopes of maintaining audience sympathy Mm -hmm. for Annie. Because they did not want to portray her as a monster. They wanted to portray her as someone very mentally ill, which she is. Well, and that's fair. Well, uh, there's ups and downs with her, that's for sure. But I think that in 2023, there's no way that any audience is having sympathy. We don't live in that world anymore. Mm. When you get to the part where you talk about her murdering children, children babies, that's not coming back. No, no. Even if she is legitimately mentally ill, which he is, but I just think the audience is never going to. That's a bridge too far, as they say. She became an amalgam of King's scariest, craziest, worst, and most obsessive fans. And I think that for, I don't know, 95% of the population, they see the way Annie acts Mm -hmm. and her entitlement over Paul's art, and they would think, this is insane. I can't relate to that. Also embarrassing. But folks, that 5%, that's out there. Oh, yeah. There are people who are like that about everything. And I think it's only growing. Looking it's at you, worse. Uh, Swifties. <laughs> well, yeah, the obsession over anything. It could be a specific artist or it could be a specific movie or Star Wars or Game of Thrones or like a bigger fandom type right. thing. That's still there. And people have this desire to have ownership over it. And I don't mean owning the Blu-rays. I mean, they... Hmm. Although that would be cool. They mean owning it. It's theirs, not the artists. And it's a weird world. (laughs) That's all I can really say. (laughs) I don't really get that mentality, but it is not only there. I think it's growing. I think that because of the spinelessness of executives and the CEOs running Netflix and Hulu and Disney and everything else, they cater to fans. They love fan service. I know. And it's just a dead end. And it's what's killing the industry in general, I think. Because you can never actually satisfy people. You can only have artists create and then you hope the audience responds to it. You can't make your art to cater to specific whims of nutcases, which I think is what happens a lot of time. And this is a very early indication of it. And it's ironic, too, because we fixated on that moment in The Princess Bride. Where oh, yeah. Kevin Arnold is like, no, that's not right. Yeah. Read it right. That can't be what it is because I don't agree with that. 
And it's a joke in the movie, right. but I was saying that that pretty much applies to all modern fan bases now. I when know. something comes out and they don't like it, they insist that it needs to be redone. And we got to mobilize on X. Online petitions or uh-huh. whatever garbage. This is almost like a more blown out version of that. Just that little joke in The Princess Bride. But it, essentially that's what it becomes. Because I guess one of the more interesting questions about Misery is, do you think things would have gone differently if the last Misery book did not come out while he was in her home where Misery Chastain is killed oh, off. Yeah, I guess probably. It's possible. Her obsessions probably would have figured out a way for him to have to stay and write her something anyway. That's true. But her outbursts of anger, some of them probably would have been avoided. It does seem she's think, completely different after yeah. she learns about Misery's fate. <laughs> yeah. There's no recovery. I know. There's probably something else that she would have... You know, it's not this thing that sets her off, but it becomes something else. Well, she was certainly set off by the new manuscript, too. But, yeah, I think where we got to, we would have gotten there maybe anyway. Right, because yeah. she probably was so mentally ill that eventually she would have concocted a reason he needed to write her something personally. Maybe just a correction. Misery is not really dead. I do think it takes him a long fucking time to figure out how to play along with her and say the right things. I'm screaming yeah. things he should be saying to her to calm her down, and he never says anything. He just looks at I her. I know. It does seem like he would be able to manipulate her. I get it at first, because he's, yeah, yeah. he's drowsy, he's fucked up, and he doesn't know how crazy she is. So he's being kind of normal and honest. I get that at first, but it does take like several incidents, and I'm screaming things he should be saying to calm her down and <laughs> make up lies yeah. and say... No, the plan is always Misery's coming back. Don't worry. He should have immediately jumped on that and said, don't worry. Well, he's just out of his element. He doesn't know how to handle you know the situation. What? He didn't get out of the cock car, and she would remember that. <laughs> cock You can't bullshit her yeah. with some fake. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King was quite impressed with Bates' performance in this film so much that he later wrote two more roles for her. The title role in his novel, Dolores Claiborne, was written with Bates in mind. That's a fucking baller move. Yeah. When you're a novelist. I know. And you're writing parts for actors. Yeah. Because you know it will get turned into a movie. That's right. (laughs) And Bates later starred in that film adaptation. King also wrote the script for the TV miniseries The Stand from 1994. His original novel featured a male character named Ray Flowers. Upon hearing that Bates wanted to be involved in the miniseries, King rewrote the part as a woman, changing the spelling to R-A-E, Flowers, just so Bates could play the part. That's awesome. The names I was seeing most often were Angelica Houston and Bette Midler. Wow. Midler would later say that she deeply regretted the decision. I'm having a hard time picturing Bette Midler. A couple of other names I saw were Jessica Lange and Barbara Streisand. Jessica Lange, that's like a completely different movie. I know. That's like, I I don't want to leave this cabin. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of didn't want to leave it anyway. I know, same. I would just stay in bed for the rest of my life. I know, like, before things horribly bad, the first instances of her nursing him back to hell, she's rubbing the little, like, washcloth across his head, giving him painkillers. This seems like a dream, other than the disgusting legs. Khan had to stay in bed for 15 weeks. That's rough to film this and Khan said he thought that Reiner was playing a sadistic joke on him knowing the actor would not enjoy not moving around for so long Khan was not used to playing a reactionary character 
and found it much tougher to play. He and Bates clashed over their acting styles, mm-hmm. their acting methods. Khan believed in as little rehearsal as possible. I think he even said he never even read the novel. But Bates, with her theater background, was used to practicing a lot. When she commented to Reiner that Khan was not attempting to relate or listen to her, Reiner told her to use that frustration toward her character. But in the end, they ended up becoming quite good friends later in life. So it all worked out. Yeah, Rob Reiner definitely did hit on those two having different styles and her wanting to do like a ton of rehearsal and James Khan basically wanting to go off instinct. (laughs) Trying to get that to meet in the middle... It didn't really work, but we, we landed where we landed. <laughs> I get it from both perspectives because Khan comes from that generation of real, authentic-looking actors just out there doing it, living it, breathing it. Mm-hmm. That is his style. Watch him in The Godfather, That's how right. he just dominates the frame. But in all fairness to Kathy Bates, she has to do a lot more than him for sure, physically because he's laying there. And she probably didn't have a ton of experience with fight scenes and violence. In fact, I know the violence fucked her up a little bit mentally. And I could see wanting to go through this a lot because Mm. there's a lot of big emotional moments from her. And you need to be able to nail the tone appropriately because she's such a unique character. She has this bubbly, cheery, but like homespun kind of dorky exterior. But then every now and then there's this giant explosion of anger. Uh-huh. And you think, oh, whoa, what's what's going on here? This is weird. <laughs> because if someone's walking around angry looking and yeah. dickish all the time, and then they explode, you're kind of like, all right, dude, yeah, we get yeah. it. She's but when someone like acts a, like her- A Midwestern sensibility. And then- Explosion. <laughs> yeah. That's even scarier. And then, But then like a dial back too. Like, oh, I'm sorry, my temper, LOL. Yeah, she's aware that- <laughs> yeah. She has outbursts, I guess. Similarly to The Shining, this story originally dealt with Stephen King's personal addictions. The film downplays that theme. Paul's addictions and substance abuse and how that plays into the captivity is never brought up. Mm -hmm. The book gives us a lot of backstory about his history of substance abuse and how he'd recently gotten himself back on track, being held in captivity, coupled with her feeding him Norvell pills all the time, Novel or Norville, like I don't know, is a fictional form of codeine, an opiate, has caused Paul to relapse, and he has swung into full-on addiction to the novel codeine. These scenes of the drug-addicted writer banging away compulsively at the typewriter as a kind of panacea bring up memories of not just The Shining and its substance-abusing writer, but also King himself, oh, yeah. who was the real deal and the inspiration for all of this. No, there's that part where he sits down at the typewriter and just writes fuck over and over. Yeah. And that was total Shining vibes. King has said that Annie is a symbol of Paul's own addictions come to life, holding him captive and trying to kill him. Reiner opted instead to go for more of just the obsessive fan and not really dive into that aspect of it. And it's probably for the best because at an hour and 47 minutes, I feel like the right amount of information is in this film. Right. I agree. And Rob Reiner talked about every film that he makes, he needs his window into. And really his thing here is more the theme of being somebody trying to break out of something and your journey through that, what you're dealing with. 
I don't think he had a personal connection to the, like the substance abuse challenge. So this was the part of the material that he latched onto more. Annie offers to care for Paul and nurse him back to health until the phone lines are reconnected and the local roads reopen following the blizzard. Yeah, his legs are Oof. gross. A rough scene. Puffy, ruined mess. Ugh. I just like look down at that and start weeping right after I vomit. Now, right after she says this, mm-hmm. we see a scene where Marsha, his agent, calls the local Silver Creek PD in search of Paul who has now gone MIA. Yeah. She gets in touch with Buster, played by Richard Farnsworth, who's the sheriff. Great character. Did that immediately register with you that she just told him the phone lines are down and then a phone call is successfully being made not too far away? Nah. It's a nice touch, though. I will say there's a lot of subtleties to the movie. Yeah, it could be that her phone lines are down and other ones are working. That's definitely possible, but it did seem weird right after she says that we're seeing a ringing phone not too far away. I did not notice that, but now I have an appreciation for it, knowing. And then when we cut back to them, she's shaving his throat and chin with a straight razor. And you're like, okay, (laughs) what's happening right now? Because that's the ultimate Mm -hmm. vulnerability, right? You have the big arteries here you're just putting them right up and she's got this giant blade in her hand and you're trusting this person that you don't know that's right yeah there are red flags from annie but i guess in all fairness you can't necessarily blame paul for missing some of them he's taking these pills willingly at first and any person that's living kind of out on the fringes of society by themselves i think it's okay to ask yourself some questions but what can he do? She admits uh, yeah. openly that she was watching him while he was writing from a distance from her car, watching the cabin he was working in, waiting, following after he leaves the cabin, and that's okay. why she was there at the scene of the accident. She had been following that's him. That's a lot to reveal. But what can, he's already yeah. trapped now. Right. He's looking around thinking, like, okay. Do you think I can make a phone call? It wasn't exactly a secret that famous author Paul Sheldon was writing up there no, the in one of the Reading cabins. It was a known thing. She also loves the misery novels with a passion so strong that the audience has to be clued in now as to where this is going because she seems very unstable. Mm-hmm. She loves the misery novels and talks about them in the present tense. Oh, sure. So <laughs> you know that she doesn't know yet. But the movie doesn't make it clear immediately when the publication of the last Misery novel is or will be or happened or whatever. So we're not sure exactly the status of that. But it's clear that Annie doesn't know yet that he plans to kill the character off. And it's also pretty evident that there's going to be a reaction to that. Oh, I'd say. (laughs) You mean globally or just from our nurse here? Probably both. Yeah. I think in King's opinion, there's a multiple... Any Wilkes is yes. out around out there saying golly gee with their gold <laughs> crucifix around their neck. I know I'm only 40 pages into your book, but. Well, what? Nothing. What is it? What's ridiculous? Who am I to make a criticism to someone like you? It's all right, I can take it. Well, it's brilliantly written, but then everything you write is brilliant. Pretty rough stuff. The swearing, Paul. There, I said it. The, uh, the profanity bothers you. It has no nobility. These are slum kids. I, I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. 
They do not. What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There, look there. See what you made me do. Oh, Paul, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, so... Sometimes I get so worked up. Can you ever forgive me? I love you, Paul. Your mind, your creativity. That's, that's all I meant. But Paul is not in a position to be fixating on those red flags because he doesn't have a choice. When Annie asks to read his new manuscript, he agrees out of gratitude. Oh, boy. Yes, he's still being very sweet to her in this moment. Annie does not, however, appreciate the profanity in Paul's new work. And when he pushes back a little bit explaining why he made the specific artistic choice, she has a mini meltdown, obviously disturbing him. But this time she quickly apologizes, realizing that she's revealing a little bit too much of her true self. Yeah, she's got to pull it back. This is a real big uh uh-oh moment, because prior to this, there were red flags. She was saying things that were weird. Mm. I was watching you while you worked. I followed you. Now she's screaming. She's yelling at him, Mm -hmm. getting very emotional over something that doesn't seem to need any emotion. That's scary. This whole movie is actually just sort of a metaphor for dating. This is like what starting a relationship is like. <laughs> and then she says, I love you, Paul. Double uh-oh now. You're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. She immediately qualifies that by saying, you're writing, I mean, your brain. Mm-hmm. But there was a pause. <laughs> <laughs> I adore all of the snowy mountain footage. It was really, really putting me in a mood. Oh, yeah. It's calming. Yeah, I've been getting into the 10-hour... YouTube videos of just aerial winter and aerial fall and stuff, and I love it. (laughs) Aerial winter, isn't that an actress? Yeah, I know. It's really hard to search for aerial shots of winter footage because everything came up assumed I was spelling aerial wrong. Oh, that's awesome. Buster continues his search. They wanted to make Buster a more proactive character than he is in the novel, and to that end, they gave him more deductive skills and drive towards finding Sheldon. Well, I love all the stuff with him and his wife. Rob Reiner was definitely talking about how they inserted that to cut the tension. These yeah. characters almost seem like out of like Twin Peaks or like a Coen Brothers movie or something. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although it almost backfires in a way because it's such a sucker punch then what uh, happens towards the end awful. where you're like, God, poor Virginia. Yeah. I know you keep wanting, well, we'll get there. I wanted her to show up at the end and be like, what's up, Wilkes? <laughs> Shotgun blast. Yeah, she's got to be around 60 years old, and she's trying to give her husband a hand job while he's driving. <laughs> and you're like, what movie is I know. this? But we see Annie pass both Buster and Virginia, which leaves absolutely no mystery left to the viewer now because she does not stop and tell them that she's rescued That's a right. man. Yeah. And clearly she knows where the accident is. 
they're very close to it at that moment where she passes them. They actually don't find it then, but she knows what they're looking for, Mm -hmm. and she doesn't say anything. So now the audience, they were sure, I think, before, even if they didn't know anything about the movie, but now it's no doubt. I guess it would have always been hard for me to watch this with any sense of surprise because we've talked about it before. There's just certain movies that if you grew up in the 90s, you just know what the movie is about or what happens in it yeah. or what it was famous for. This was definitely a cultural touchstone. Yeah. Even though it only made 60-something million, which was decent, but yeah. not a huge... You could have told me this made 300 million. Sure, and I yeah, because believed- it has that legacy of being like a big, impactful movie. Yeah, if you would have asked me what drew more money, mm-hmm. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle or Misery, I would have thought Misery. Or if you had said... Even Basic Instinct. I would yeah, have said true. Misery. Yeah. I thought this was a huge hit by how much I knew about it, right. how much it was referenced. I think there was a famous SNL sketch with Roseanne, who also almost played Annie Wilkes, oh, I think, wow. which would have been terrible. I just think it became a thing because of this shocking scene. And when we get to the shocking scene, we can kind of talk about why it's shocking, even when you see way more horrific violence in something like yeah. Thanksgiving, the new Eli Roth movie. <laughs> right. But there's something different about it when you set up a world correctly that's very realistic with very real characters, especially an actor that we've all known for fucking 20 years since The Godfather. And then you have that happen. And the audience is like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> And that's different, even though the shit you see in other movies is way worse because you've set up this and whole thing. I think it's just in a different position, too. He's so vulnerable and yeah. it's so slow. And it's so traditionally unexpected yeah, right. from a woman to do something this insane. Totally. Annie went into town to buy the new Misery book, which she excitedly brings home. She tells Paul she called the orthopedic surgeon at the nearest hospital and that an ambulance will come when all of the roads are cleared. She also says she called Marcia to tell her about Paul's location and situation. The possession of the latest Misery novel seems to soothe Annie, bringing her so much joy and happiness as she tears through it. But you have to kind of think there's some rising panic on Paul's part right now, and I don't know why he doesn't try to get in front of it a little bit. He's letting her just get to this. Maybe he still doesn't get how crazy she is. Right. But I would be very tempted to start spoiling it and trying to Ease her in. Ease into what's yeah. going to happen and, and already making up a lie about a new book with her coming back. I would have already jumped on that. <laughs> You're 10 steps ahead. Well, as soon as you realize that she's crazy. Yeah. If he doesn't give her the spoiler, then at least when she comes in with the reaction. <laughs> I know. Then I would start talking. Misery the pig. Yes. Is introduced. Annie has a small farm, I guess, although the only animal we ever see is this pig that she named after her favorite character. She brings him into the house, and then she's running around honking at the pig. (laughs) This woman is nuts. She's all over the map. She's this cheery, nice person, and then she's using casual slurs and then screaming over characters in books or profanity in other books. I know. It's weird to hear Sistine Chapel referred to the way that she does. It's gone on long enough. We know we're not really this mature. They dance around it a little bit with the pee jug. Mm-hmm. What is going on with number twos? Yeah. Yikes. It doesn't seem like a great scene. Yeah. You almost You think, why think don't that... you just build a, a little bathroom off the side of the room <laughs> that he can be wheeled to? Well, at first he can't even get out of bed. Yeah. The wheelchair isn't introduced until later. It's still not even on the table yet. At one point, Annie says this great couple of sentences. That's when I first discovered misery. 
She made me so happy. <laughs> Such a weird thing to say. <laughs> it was only a matter of time, though, before the shit hit the fan, and it does. When Annie finishes the book and discovers that Misery Chastain dies at the end, she flies into a rage, screaming at Paul and smashing furniture against the wall near his head. Her final revelation confirms what we as viewers already knew to be true. She's completely insane. And she tells Paul that nobody knows where he is and that she never told a soul that she had rescued him. He is effectively being held prisoner inside her secluded home. So you better hope I don't die. <laughs> Ominous. Yeah. There's a lot of jail bars imagery, if mm. you pay attention, with the windows. They almost yeah. seem to be doubled, so there's extra lines, and then the bed frame as well. They do bars with shadows a couple times. Even though Khan doesn't get to do as much, I do think there's a lot of entertaining eye acting from him, especially in these moments when she starts freaking out and it's new to him where oh, he's yeah. just like, what is going on? Yeah, he does find a way to use his body movement to emote even in a limited position. Yeah. When Annie leaves again, Paul makes his first attempt at trying to get out of the bed and it's a huge disaster. He can't do anything. He's basically just on the floor. She finds him there and then picks him back up and then... I didn't write down the entirety of the quote, but then she references being forgetful on the stand in Denver mm -hmm. and just leaves it at that. And you're like, what the fuck is she doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just weave in a couple of these things, giving you a little window that there's something more going on here. Annie then forces Paul to burn the only copy of his new manuscript with the implied cheerful threat of her potentially lighting him on fire, too, as she puts lighter fluid on the blanket. She wants to rid the world of this filth, but it also feels like part of a punishment mm -hmm. for what happened to Misery. I'd say so. This is the first time Paul pockets the novel pills because the danger is evident now. He can't just lay there and wait to feel better. Now it's clear that he has to get out of here. Yeah, his life is at a stake. A plan is needed. Next, Annie provides... Paul with a second-hand typewriter and orders him to begin writing a new novel titled Misery's Return in which he brings her favorite character back to life. Mm -hmm. Hasn't this bitch ever heard of fan fiction? Just write it yourself. Yeah, Who I cares? know, really. It's made up. Just make up a new one. It was a different world, though. You know, we used to put the artists on so much more of a pedestal. One of Stephen King's first typewriters had a malfunctioning N key, just like the one used by Paul in the movie. In the novel, the typewriter also drops its T and E keys. Those two letters are second and first most commonly used letters in the English language, respectively, making Paul's job even tougher. Really? Now that the cat is out of the bag, let's get into it with Annie. Annie displays traits associated with an array of mental illnesses. At the very least, bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a severe personality disorder with paranoid, antisocial, and borderline features, and likely some sort of schizophrenic or schizoaffective spectrum disorder. <laughs> hmm. I think that's the EGOT of mental illness. Yes, yeah, really. <laughs> In a special feature on the Collector's Edition DVD, a forensic psychologist described Annie as a virtual catalog of mental illness. That's a good character study. The filmmakers did spend significant time crafting Annie as a specifically sick person, not an all-purpose monster. And there is a feeling of sympathy throughout the film for Annie, I think. 
She is a human being definitely with a plethora of mental illnesses, but she isn't exactly Pennywise the Clown, though I believe many would see her as a monster if she was a real person, no matter what. Definitely. Two. I think you can kind of get away with it. We were talking about this earlier, and I do think in 2023 there would be a lot of... If they didn't include that other stuff from her backstory, like if it was something else... Yeah, well, they don't include the backstory that Bates and Reiner came up with themselves, which is that she was molested by her father. That's why her father's the first mysterious death in her little scrapbook. Mm -hmm. And she's just fucked up from the get-go. But in real life... You're not killing a bunch of babies in a hospital. That's what I'm and, saying. And people are going to be sympathetic no matter what. If there was some other reason that she got run out of her profession and kind of became a hermit, like something that she did that was bad, but it wasn't killing babies, Yeah, you could still garner some sympathy. But yeah, it's, it's a line once you cross that you're not coming back from. In order to get Paul over to the desk to begin work on this book, she has now provided him with the wheelchair as well, so that's introduced into the equation. Mm-hmm. When Paul shows Annie that the paper that she has provided him to uh-huh. type on causes ink to smudge easily and asks for a different kind. How does this go? She has another meltdown, uh-huh. this time slamming a book down on Paul's injured legs for emphasis, which causes him to cry out. This was a really weird scene to watch. Lindsay was watching this movie with me, and earlier that day, we had had a little bit of a run-in over some groceries. <laughs> she ended up getting these rolled gold big pretzels, and we always have the little minis from Giant Eagle. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why did you get these pretzels? Boy, she was already <laughs> ready. She knew I was going to have an issue. She was like, I couldn't find those pretzels anywhere. And when <laughs> she was flipping out about, oh, just go back and buy the paper. <laughs> Man, this is like right out of misery. <laughs> yeah, I have often thought of Lindsay as an Annie Wilkes type. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of similarities you can draw between this movie and what's going on in my house all the time. <laughs> it's it's two of the letters of my favorite nurse's name, Annie. <laughs> you fooler. Did I do good? You did great. <laughs> there is just one little thing. Um, I can't work on this paper. See, it's graspable bond and it smudges. So I thought maybe if you went back into town, you could bring me some white long grain mimeo. But mine costs the most, so I don't see how it can smudge. Come here, I'll show you. smudge after all isn't that fascinating i thought you'd be interested i'd i'd like for you to be in on everything annie not just the finished book but how it's written thank you for thinking of me anything else i can get while i'm in town any other crucial requirements that need satisfying would you like a tiny tape recorder or how about a handmade set of writing slippers? Well, just uh, the paper will be fine. Are you sure? Because if you want, I'll bring back the whole store for you. Annie, 
What's the matter? What's the matter? I'll tell you what's the matter. I go out of my way for you. I do everything to try and make you happy. I feed you, I clean you, I dress you, and what thanks do I get? Oh, you bought the wrong paper, Annie. I can't write on this paper, Annie. Well, I'll get your stupid paper, but you just better start showing me a little more appreciation around here, Mr. Man. However, Annie does go back to town for the paper that Paul wants. And while she's gone, Paul uses a discarded bobby pin to unlock his door and leave his room. I did think it was hilarious that he was like, I write about this all the time. I can do this. (laughs) No, it was more like, come on. I write about this all the time. I should be able to do it. Right, right. Because I've said that people can do it. It has to be real. (laughs) Cast and crew were excited for the scene where Paul picks the bedroom door lock and rolls himself out into the house to explore for possible escape options. We had literally only moved like four feet, but it was exciting to be shooting something other than yeah. that bedroom. <laughs> the empty phone is probably what? The, the only time where there's something really weird that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, because it doesn't take you long to think, well, why would you just have a phone as a prop? Yeah. This is the closest element to a cheat in the film, as there's no real reason she would have it sitting there unless she expected Paul to escape from his room. The filmmakers rationalize it by saying simply that she's crazy. My thoughts on it, it's not a big deal because there's a lot of options. You could say as soon as she brought Paul back to her house, she told him the phone lines were down. Well, what the fuck happens if your phone rings? He'll hear it. Right. So she may have undid her phone. That's a decent explanation. Number two is no one's ever called her, and that's just there to look like she's normal. Right. She doesn't have a phone. Yeah. I mean, I think that is wrapped under the umbrella of she's crazy. Yeah, and I think that it's fine. Yeah. I don't even know that I would personally consider it a cheat. I did think it was a little weird. Maybe a way to do it is she did have a phone and she cut her own phone line or something. Oh, you mean instead? Yeah, Yeah. right. It's kind of reminding me a little bit of whatever happened to baby Jane. Mm -hmm. Not exactly a one-for-one, but there's definitely some similarities in some of the stuff in this movie. While he's out and about in the house, Paul snags some of those extra pills. Definitely seems like he's collecting them at this point. The kitchen door and the front door are both locked, and then you have the panicky race back to bed before Annie returns, and then he somehow relocks it all in time. He thinks he got away with it, but we know that he really didn't because Mm -hmm. he bumped into a little penguin figurine and and knocked it it off. slightly, yeah. He knocked it off the table, and then he didn't put it back exactly right. Uh That speaks to the obsessive-compulsive disorder. Oh, yeah. Buster eventually spots Paul's car off the road, mostly buried in snow. All traces of footprints or anything indicating that Paul had been rescued are long gone. You know what I like about that penguin thing, though? There's really no focus on it, and it takes so long for it to really factor in. Yeah. Like, it just happens. In when the it happens, the you think near miss. They were just doing that for suspense. Like yeah. he almost broke it. Right. Because he catches it they right before it hits the ground. They don't linger on it. I feel like you're used to he walks away and the camera zooms in. <laughs> yeah. on the fact, You know what I mean? And they don't do that at all. Everything keeps moving and then so much time passes before it actually factors in. I like that. Yeah, I do too. I, I would say, though, that it's easier when you have the character interact with it. So he almost knocks it off and then catches it, and there's a close-up on it when he catches it. Right. So it is planning it in the viewer's mind that way, and that's a better way to do it. Yeah, yeah. You come up with a way to plan it in their mind other than just zooming in on it. When Paul's car 
is found, he is assumed to be dead in a subplot original to the film. Coincidentally, on June 19, 1999, author Stephen King was hit by a car with some initial reports saying he had died. King eventually incorporated the accident into his book, The Dark Tower 7, The Dark Tower. I don't, is that the real name? Which also briefly mentioned Annie Wilkes. Okay. Wow. Of all the crossover, I wasn't expecting it to be that. It was really a fucked up thing. King almost died, but... Well, yeah. There was a joke in a video montage at the Oscars that year that they would never do now uh-huh. that was so funny because King has acted in many of his movies. Of course. So they have clips of him, probably from Creepshow or something. He's making a big like reaction face. They somehow cut this all together where it's a guy walking along the side of the road and then there's like a van coming at him and then they use like other clips where it's like King reacting. Oh, it's all wow. very fast yeah. in a montage of a bunch of other stuff, like visual gags and stuff. But it was really funny, but also kind of rough because I think he was probably still really fucked up from it. Yeah. That's <laughs> wild that they did that. And it definitely got a reaction. Oh, yeah. I think it was the Oscars. If somebody has any memory of that and wants to, to correct me. me. I, that kind of se- I f- feel like I have a faint memory of Because that would that. have been probably the Oscars of 2000. Or maybe it wasn't the Oscars. It could have been Golden Globes. It was mm-hmm. some award show, I feel like, or something like that. I do feel like it was the Oscars that always did those big, jokey yeah. montage things, though. Meanwhile, back in hell, Paul begins work on Annie's new misery novel. Back in hell. Of course, he's just not doing it right, and she demands that he starts again. I'm sorry, Paul. This is all wrong. What? You'll have to do it over again. It's not worthy of you. Throw it all out, except for that part of naming the gravedigger after me. You can leave that in. I really value your criticism, but maybe we're being a little hasty here. Paul, what you've written just isn't fair. Not fair. That's right. When I was growing up in Bakersfield, my favorite thing in all the world was to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons for the chapter plays. Cliffhangers. I know that, Mr. Man. They also call them serials. I'm not stupid, you know. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no-breaks chapter, the bad guy stuck him in a car on a mountain road and knocked him out and welded the door shut and tore out the brakes and started him to his death. And he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape. And it crashed and burned, and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. And they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out. And here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free. And all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, this isn't what happened last week. Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car. They always cheated like that in um, chapter plays. But not you. Not with my misery. Remember, Ian did ride for Dr. Cleary at the end of the last book, but his horse fell jumping that fence, and Ian broke his shoulder and his ribs and lay all night in the ditch, and he never reached the doctor, so there couldn't have been any experimental blood transfusion that saved her life. Misery was buried in the ground at the end, Paul, so you'll have to start there. This was one of my favorite yeah. scenes. Is how Her analogy, her example, is actually pretty good. Oh, yeah. like It makes sense what she means, but it's so funny the way she 
launches into this insane rant over it. Yeah, yeah. The cliffhanger story. <laughs> well, she called them, what did she call them? The continuing, or con- I don't know what, she had a different word. And then he yeah, says, serial, oh, cliffhangers. Right. And she's like, I know that's. <laughs> yeah. James Conn's facial expressions during this meltdown are legendary. It's so funny. It's unclear exactly what she wants, though. As I was watching this, I couldn't remember how they bring Misery back. Obviously, it's a little detail that doesn't really affect the characters in yeah. the film. So I was thinking, what the fuck does she want him to do? Make her a zombie? Because she was like, whatever you're saying, it wasn't how the last book ended. You can't just retcon it. Right. She's not a fan of retconning. Clearly. No, no, no. So she wanted him to somehow come up with a way for Misery to still be alive that didn't involve whatever happened in the other story not happening. I guess he comes up with some stupid thing that she loves eventually, but there is that moment there where you're like, well, what the fuck? A zombie? A vampire? I I don't know. How is she coming back from the dead? Well, that's why in these interactions, especially like when you get to this part of the movie, I do feel like he's always scared, confused, but always kind of slightly amused with her, too. Well, I shouldn't say always, but in certain sequences. Maybe not after a certain point, but certainly yeah. towards the beginning of their interactions. Right. But once he fixes it the way she wants, she has a joyous reaction, finally. Mm-hmm. And she starts playing Liberace music. It's <laughs> a very bizarre sequence. But yeah, that's played over the montage. And, and that's the, he's uh, doing the, other the typing. Sh- that's the other shrine that she has. There's one to him and one to Liberace. Paul invites Annie to dine with him that night in order to celebrate Misery's return, which he credits her greatly for making possible. So when I was flipping out earlier in the episode Mm. saying, I knew the things he should be saying, this is finally him doing that. This is what you should have been doing as soon as she seemed crazy at all. Start sucking up to her. She's your fan. So you have that advantage of she really wants you to respect her, love her, be kind to her, whatever. Yeah, to yeah. just be a positive Be accepted force. as a peer. And then you have to embellish it and just act like she's the greatest mm-hmm. and every idea she has is great and then start making up lies about how Misery's not really dead and it was always the plan to have another book. You have to say whatever you can to get out of these things, I think, especially if you can't move in a strange place with a stranger who seems nutty. I think I would just accept this is my life now and try to appease her. It seems Paul is finally realizing how to play Annie the right way. She's beyond flattered by the invitation, elated even, and graciously accepts. Paul plays it cool. He's happy. He's engaged, trying to be everything Annie needs to remain calm. He wants to make a toast, and when Annie looks for candles, he uses the stockpile of painkillers he accumulated to spike Annie's wine, but the plan fails when Annie accidentally knocks over her glass mm-hmm. and their what? toast is yeah to misery well i was getting ready to go down a path of how brutal this is that spending so much time pulling those little pills apart yeah like constructing this all out waiting for your moment finally doing it and then the glass just accidentally gets tipped over and, and you just, can't react yeah you have to try to play it cool yeah you can't act as if something horrible just happened because it took days and Let's face it. And then you're just left. He's in great pain, right. and he's sacrificing taking those pills. to. So he, at that point, you're just like, I should have taken the just fucking pills. Just give me those friggin' pills to misery. 
When that doesn't work, Paul pours himself into the new novel, and time continues to pass. The weather softens, and some of the snow begins to melt. Over the days and weeks, Paul builds his strength back to occasionally using the typewriter itself as a weight to lift above his head. Even though Paul is nearly finished with the book she wants, there is a pretty dramatic shift in Annie's mood to the negative. We've seen her explode several times in anger, and by now we're used to her weird, cheery, slightly off demeanor, but now we're seeing her depression. She's crazy enough to do what she's done to this point, but she still seems to think that there will be a day when this ends and life would go back to normal and Paul <laughs> would go back to his life yeah. as a writer and she's going to lose him. And this will just be a little adventure they shared. But she's depressed about that. She's not scared of going to prison. No. Not, nothing like that. She's just sad that this adventure they're having will be over. Well, he's going to get his strength back. She does seem like she really lacks a grasp of the reality of the situation at times. Yeah. And yet... Now, when a cop shows up, it gets pretty real. Yeah, once we cross a certain threshold, we're talking murder-suicide, uh-huh. but before that, it does seem as if, for a moment, she's not exactly sure where this is going, maybe. She hasn't thought this all through. She's sort of just acting on instinct. Mm-hmm. Who knows? With people who have this much mental illness, maybe when she pulled him out of that car, her intentions were pure, and it would have been fine and normal if certain I, things yeah. had happened differently. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like you can make that argument. You can, but she's so mentally ill yeah, that I know. there's a chance that something goes wrong somewhere. It could right. have been worse, even. She could have killed him immediately. You never know what's going to set her off. Annie, what is it? The rain. Sometimes it gives me the blues. When you first came here, I only loved the writer part of Paul Sheldon. But now I know I love the rest of him, too. I know you don't love me. Don't say you do. You're a beautiful, brilliant, famous man of the world, and I'm not a movie star type. You'll never know the fear of losing someone like you if you're someone like me. Why would you lose me? The book's almost finished. Your legs are getting better. Soon you'll be wanting to leave. Why would I leave? I like it here. That's very kind of you. But I'll bet it's not altogether true. in it. 
Yeah, there's a lot of clips, people. Sorry. He's into it. The reason there are so many clips is because I had a hard time picking because I thought everything that Kathy Bates, every scene, I was like, this is great. I have mm-hmm. to have this. I love the clips. I, I don't know how people feel about them, but I think they can definitely supplement it. Maybe sometimes they should be a little less or shorter, but you know what? It's a free podcast, all right? <laughs> but the weather change and the mood change coinciding feels ominous. It is dawning on her how this will have to likely end because she loves Paul now and does not want to go back to the way things were before. Annie leaves again, and Paul once again sneaks out of his room. He arms himself with a big knife from the kitchen and then finds Annie's scrapbook. In it are a variety of disturbing news clippings, including a few on Paul's own disappearance. Here's some of the things that we see. The first, chronologically is a story about Annie's father dying under mysterious circumstances, seemingly falling down the stairs. Hmm. As I said... Seems suspect. Kathy Bates likes to really create a backstory for her characters, and she and Reiner decided to go with this idea that she had been molested by her father. That's never really mentioned in the movie or anything, but I guess that's potentially a source of some of her problems. Mm -hmm. Then we move on to a specific nursing student's mysterious death, which also happens to be a fall. And then there's lots of clippings of people just dying in the hospitals. She was going with the old staircase method. All of these people presumably under Annie's care, but the worst of the clippings come toward the end of the scrapbook as they reveal that Annie moved on to the maternity ward and then babies started dying. She was arrested, branded by the media as the dragon lady, and then put on trial for the deaths of several infants, but the trial ultimately collapsed due to a lack of evidence. Hmm. And we're going to find out later, Annie even quoted lines from Paul's Misery novels during her trial. Wow, that's dedication. Also, just a really poor job by the prosecution here. Well, we don't know the specifics. Not getting it done. Sometimes it's hard to have a lot of evidence in baby deaths. A A lot of things get attributed to... What do they call it? Crib death or something? Mm-hmm. or A series know, of instances that she was close to? Well, she got arrested, but yeah. there may not have actually been evidence. I understand. Circumstantial evidence is hard to convict, especially a woman, for murder. Okay. Fair enough. According to director Rob Reiner, Annie Wilkes' killing spree is loosely based on that of Janine Jones, a nurse who is believed to have killed as many as 60 children who were in her care over a two-year period. Jesus Christ. Paul feels prepared for Annie when she returns. He's got the knife ready and tucked away. He's not drowsy from drugs. He's regained much of his strength, too. But then Annie doesn't come into his room. Instead, she waits until Paul's asleep and then injects him with a sedative. When he awakes, he's tied down to the bed. Turns out that Annie knows he's been leaving the room, and she has the knife he took and the bobby pin he's been using as a key. Oh, boy. In order to prevent Paul from escaping again, Annie places a block of wood between Paul's shins and Mm. then in one of the most famous horror moments of the 90s, if not of all time. All time, yeah, really. She uses a sledgehammer to break his ankles. Oof. As I mentioned earlier, Kathy Bates had a hard time with some of the violence and she would cry before these scenes, including the final fight as well. I was crying after. (laughs) I've obviously seen this movie before. It had been a while. I have thought about this scene most when I think about this movie, but even watching it this time, 
It's a little bit rougher than I even remembered. Yeah. The look of what happens to those ankles. Well, you actually only see one. Okay. Well, That's what's one. so yeah. great about it. I tried to pay attention because I was like, do they show both? And I think they just show the first yeah, one. That, and the second right. one, he just winces or you know, more than winces. But boy, it's a rough angle. In the original novel, Annie Wilkes severs one of Paul Sheldon's feet with an axe. Mm. Goldman loved the scene and argued for it to be included, but Reiner insisted that it be changed, that she only breaks his ankles. Goldman subsequently wrote that this was the correct decision as the visual depiction of an amputation would cause the audience to hate Annie instead of sympathizing with her madness at all. Mm. Part of it in the novel is that she cauterizes the stump with a propane torch. Rough. I'm assuming you're raw-dogging it. No pain yeah. medication, no <laughs> numbing agent, just straight fire on your open wound. <laughs> oh, yikes. Yeah, I'm good with the broken ankle. But honestly, though, long-term... Yeah. He gets a prosthetic foot that probably works better than the way his foot is in this movie. I don't think his I don't think he'd ever be able to walk normally after what she does to him. No, but he does in the movie though. Uh no he doesn't. He's uh. walking with a cane and he's limping. Okay. <laughs> what do you mean he walks normally? I don't know. He seemed to carry himself okay. With a cane limping. Yeah. <laughs> after seeing the notorious scene where his character gets his ankles broken at a screening James Kahn turned to Rob Reiner and said, you're a sick fuck. Yeah, fair. Kahn's fake legs were molded out of gelatin. Armatures with wire were inserted into the prosthetic ankles so that after Annie hit them with the sledgehammer, they would bend at the desired gruesome angles. There were holes cut into the mattress so that Kahn could hide his real legs up to the knee. How about this? In the mm. book, Annie not only chops off Paul's left foot as retaliation for him having moved around the house without her approval, she later cuts off his left thumb with an electric carving knife after Paul complains about the deteriorating typewriter because in the book, as I mentioned, the T&E also don't work. Paul has a nightmare then where Annie then serves him a birthday cake with his thumb as an unlit candle oh, wow. in it. This turns into like a whole Hannibal situation. She threatens that if he doesn't eat the cake, he'll have to eat his thumb too. Hmm. But that's a dream at least. Okay. Paul. So if you'd like me to stay in place tomorrow for you, I'd love to. I know you've been out. What? You've been out of your room. No, I haven't. Paul, my little ceramic penguin in the study always faces due south. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Ceramic penguin. Is this what you're looking for? I know you've been out twice, Paul. First, I couldn't figure out how you did it. But last night, I found your key. I know I left my scrapbook out. I can imagine what you might be thinking of me. But you see, Paul, it's all okay. Last night, it came so clear. I realize you just need more time. Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Paul, do you know about the early days of the Kimberly diamond mines? Do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds? Don't worry, they didn't kill them. That would be like junking a Mercedes just because it had a broken spring. No, if they caught them, they had to make sure they could go on working. But they also had to make sure they could never run away. The operation was called hobbling. 
thinking about doing it. Please don't do it. And he forgot. Shh, darling. Trust me. For God's sake. It's for the best. Eddie, please! Almost done. Just one more. God, I love you. The best part is this all ends with a proclamation of I love you after she's done this. It's a scene that takes the story to another level. You're once again in the position of how the fuck is he getting out of this now? He seemed so close and now he's not only back to zero, he may be worse off than he was. I don't know. Meanwhile, Buster continues to investigate Paul's disappearance as he never bought that Paul crawled out of the vehicle and died somewhere. He seems like the only halfway decent cop in this area. Yeah. He's the only one that notices that door damage that seems like it's from a crowbar. To be fair, I don't think there's that many of them. Well, J.T. Walsh is showing up. That's true. (laughs) For one second. That's fair. He also connects Annie's quote from her trial to the Misery books because for some reason he decides to start reading all of the Misery novels. This was a little weird, and I'm not sure that makes sense. I think he's just got a lot of time on his hands. Okay. I mean, they make a joke that there's one phone call, and that's like the biggest thing that's happened. That's true, but, well, I guess since she was on trial earlier, maybe it was one of the older Misery books, and he got to it sooner. I was just thinking yeah. you'd have to dig through all of those books sure, and find sure. that quote. Yeah. But I guess... Oh, yeah, that part tweet. I thought you were saying it was weird that he would read these books. No, that this just all works yeah. out so perfectly, well, yeah. very quickly. After confirming at the store in town that Annie's a Paul Sheldon superfan and also recently purchased paper to type on, Buster decides to pay Annie a visit. When Annie sees him coming down the long road to her place, she drugs Paul and dumps him into the basement. Annie allows Buster inside to look around, admitting to being Paul's number one fan, while also saying God spoke to her and told her to pick up the mantle and continue the misery stories bizarre and i don't know that buster's reaction to it is enough i'd be like what (laughs) what are you talking about now yeah do you think when buster ultimately tries to leave he's less suspicious or more suspicious i think he stays suspicious the whole time the way that farnsworth plays the character is always so subdued that you're not sure what he's thinking i think at a certain point he just knows and once he knows his mind is not being changed. That's possible, but he does seem like he's going to leave until he hears a sound. I know, because but he doesn't have anything left to That's true. press. He can't push it any further at yeah. the moment. As Buster looks around the first floor of the home and then eventually the upstairs, Annie is clearly a little agitated and talking way too much, but he doesn't see any evidence of Paul. All set to leave and out the door, Buster then hears Paul come to and knock over Annie's grill in the basement. Buster goes back inside, hears Paul calling, and then discovers him at the foot of the steps down into the basement, only to be murdered via shotgun blast to the back. Mr. Sheldon? If he does know and suspect throughout this whole thing, and then yes, it's revealed that there's at least someone there and he wants to investigate it further, his guard way too far down. Yeah. I think... You can read this possibly, though, that he's not convinced of anything and that he was going to leave. 
and then he hears a sound of crashing because when he comes back in, he's like, Annie, Annie, or Miss Wilkes. Yeah. But yeah, I think that is fair because I guess even by the surprise in his voice, Mr. Sheldon? Yeah, well, yeah, the guy who you were looking for here. Well, I guess this is a good time to ask the question of before this all started, mm-hmm. was Buster and everyone else in town aware of Annie's past? Being arrested, put on trial for murder, or did this did come to about, light after? I did think about this. I don't know how they couldn't know in a town like this. You would think, but I don't know. It's a rural area. Although it was, was the same to, state, though. She was able to collect all the newspapers in town. It was the same state. Well, I yeah. don't think she was living there. Well, true. Happened. You're right. but Because she mentions Denver, and I'm not yeah. sure how close that is. So, I don't know. Somebody moves into a town like this, though, you find out their backstory. Because I was wondering if it was even conceivable mm-hmm. for Buster to imagine what's going on. He's obviously suspicious, but does he have any idea what could be happening? I guess you have to think no, because if he did know her backstory, then he would be way more suspicious and way more pressing, I think. Because that's a pretty checkered past. Either way, he does then learn about it before he goes over to the house, though, from the news clippings, because that's how he matches the quote. Yeah. So his lack of preparation, his lack of awareness to turn his back like that, I don't know. It is weird. Like I said, his guard just being this far down seems odd. It's truly a bummer, though, because the interactions between Buster and Virginia are very funny and sweet and light. They really bring the movie together. Even though we know that Annie is crazy and we know that this is a dangerous situation and she's already injured Paul in this very horrible way, this now feels like the full-blown escalation because even she knows that based on how she wants to proceed from here. Right. She's thinking, well, this is the end now. They're going to come after me. They know that this is happening because I've just killed a policeman. (laughs) Now, granted... (laughs) I don't know that he told anyone he was going there, but how would she know that? She wouldn't know if he told anyone he was going there. No, I know. So she assumes that this is the end. Right. Both Paul and Annie sense it, although they probably have different hopes of how it went. (laughs) Despite being affected by the violence, though, Kathy Bates was reportedly disappointed that a scene was cut in which she kills a young police officer by rolling over him repeatedly with a lawnmower. Oh, wow. Rob Reiner was afraid that the audience would laugh at it. That's something that they actually filmed, or it was cut from the script? I think it was cut from the script. I don't think they filmed it. But I don't know. It didn't didn't clarify. I haven't investigated any of the deleted scenes. Hmm. And even if it was a deleted scene, it might be one that they wouldn't include anyway. It's not like they include every single scene in a deleted scene package, unfortunately. Annie makes up her mind to kill Paul in a murder-suicide, but Paul, concealing a can of lighter fluid in his pants, convinces her to let him live long enough to finish the novel in order to, quote, give misery back to the world. Another fun quote. Yeah, you would think that there was a little more sense of urgency on her end, though. I would just think that, hey, the walls are closing in now. You just killed a cop here. Somebody's going to be coming soon. Well, he just wants a few hours, and she's really... Desperate to read this book. That's true. Yeah, I guess when factoring in her desperation about reading the book, yeah. You can't apply logic logic to what she's doing. Sure. (laughs) She wants that book more than anything. Right. So this is a good move by him. This is the way he should have been dealing with her all along. Yeah, yeah. It really took about half the movie. (laughs) 
You see, I've known for some time why I was chosen to save you. You and I were meant to be together forever. Now our time in this world must end. But don't worry, Paul. I've prepared for what must be done. I put two bullets in my gun. One for you and one for me. Oh, darling, it'll be so beautiful. Be afraid. I love you. I love you too. And you're right. We are meant to be together. And I know we must die. But it must be. So that misery can live. We have the power to give misery eternal life. We must finish the book. But the time is now. Soon others will come. It's almost finished. By dawn, we'll be able to give misery When the manuscript is done, Paul asks for a cigarette and champagne, and Annie complies. However, to her horror, Paul uses the lighter to set the manuscript on fire, telling her, I learned it from you. Paul then strikes Annie with the typewriter after she tries futilely to save the manuscript, and they engage in a violent struggle with Paul suffering a gunshot wound to the shoulder from her revolver. Yeah, these two in uh, hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, (laughs) rolling around on the floor. He trips her, and the way he trips her is funny, too, because he has to literally pick up his leg and swing yeah. it like a <laughs> club or something. And then she strikes her head on the typewriter, much like Ted from Breaking Bad, who we recently oh, I know. referenced. Paul crawls out of the room, but Annie recovers and attacks again. Paul grabs a metal doorstop and bashes Annie in the face, finally killing her. Yeah, a lot of blunt trauma to the head. Yeah, well... She made a mistake. It wasn't anything that she could really do, I guess, because she needed him to have his hands to type. But at a certain point, his arms and shoulder healed, and he's a big, he's a big strong guy, and right. he, he's able to use the jump that he gets on her and then makes the most of it. I did think it was funny that Reiner made the claim that he thought this was the first film where the audience thought that the villain was dead only to have them come back. And people were like, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, wow, that's out of touch. There was like 20 years of yeah. slasher movies by then <laughs> where that had happened repeatedly. <laughs> King has Paul pretend to burn Misery's Return at the end and then go on to see it published anyway. But the film has him actually destroy the only copy. Reiner suspects that King, even subliminally, fears what might happen if he doesn't supply his constant readers with the kinds of books they expect from him. The director wanted to affirm Paul's desire to move on to other things. So from that, you wonder if Stephen King at certain points in his career resented the fact that he really was primarily horror. But 
I have a hard time really thinking that that played into it with him because he got so successful at a certain point that he would have been able to do other stuff too. Oh, yeah. But I guess in this specific scenario, it's not about what his publisher would let him do. It's about what his fans would think and how they're going to react. So I guess that still kind of holds true. Mm -hmm. You feel kind of boxed into what you're allowed to do. In the original idea for the novel, Annie planned to kill Paul Sheldon by feeding him to Misery the pig and take his skin to bind the book he had written. Yeah, I feel like the pig should have factored back in in some way. The title would have been the Annie Wilkes first edition. Yeah, that feels also very much like Hannibal. Yeah, that's right. I believe this book would have come out before Hannibal. Mm-hmm. Not the movie, obviously. Not the well, movie, yeah. But I'm thinking of the that actual That seems novel. right to me. I think. 18 months later, Paul, now walking with a cane, meets his agent, Marsha, in a restaurant in New York City. The two discuss his first post-misery novel, and Marsha tells him about the positive early buzz. Paul replies that he wrote the novel for himself as a way to help deal with the horrors of his captivity. Marsha asks if he would consider a nonfiction book about his captivity, but Paul, who suffers from psychological trauma from the experience, seems to decline, although I think all good horror writers would eventually oh, use turn that into... Yeah, yeah. Well, even if it was In nonfiction. Some way, right, yeah. It could be fictionalized or... If he wanted to give a, a real account, it just probably needed more time than 18 months. Well, yeah, I'm sure at some point it would have been therapeutic even. Paul then sees a waitress approaching him who he hallucinates as Annie, commenting that he still thinks about her once in a while. The waitress tells Paul that she is his number one fan, causing Paul to meekly reply, that's very sweet of you. Okay, so towards the end of the movie, it's finally established just how long Paul has been there. Perhaps surprisingly, only four weeks have passed since the road accident. The ongoing snow and rain falling would have also covered up the various tire and foot tracks at the crash site, hence the delay in finding the crash. In the novel, the time Paul spends trapped in the house is a lot longer, at least many months from winter into the warmer part of spring, which Paul keeps track of by the snow melting around her property. After refusing to speak about his motivations for writing Misery for two decades, Stephen King finally came out and stated that it is indeed about his battle with substance abuse. Kathy Bates's character is a representation of his dependency on drugs and what it did to his body, making him feel alone and separated from everything while hobbling any attempts he made at escape. In his statement, he said he did not come out with it at the time mm. because he was not ready and because he was afraid it would detract from the story. Eventually, it did make its way to Broadway. Goldman adapted his own script. There was a brief run in 15 and 16 starring Bruce Willis as Paul Sheldon and Laurie Metcalf as Annie Wilkes. Oh, wow. I had no idea. That's an awesome cast. And then that's it, I guess, as far as what's going on with Misery, because the last thing was that Hulu show, which I did not see. Mm -hmm. But I am now actually intrigued. I also have the audio book on my phone, but I did not have time, obviously, to listen to it, although well, I should have yeah. thought ahead and started. That would make two of us, seeing as I've been working my way through that it audiobook for about three years now. This is a lot shorter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one's a lot shorter. I have read the novel, but it's it's been such a long time that I, I don't really remember much about it. Mm -hmm. But the story, it works on a lot of levels, because I think you can get comparisons to aspects of Hitchcock, especially Rear oh, Window yeah. and things like that, but it also has a lot of the psychological stuff for both characters. The novel is a little bit deeper because it gets into the addiction stuff, but it's a really fascinating 
character study between yeah. two characters, especially Annie Wilkes. It's just a, a home run performance. Yeah, and I don't think I would ever think of Rob Reiner as one of my top directors or anything. And even stylistically, I would probably say mostly just a little too light for me. You know, I like the, the darker stuff, but there's something about what he brings to both this and Stand By Me that makes it stand apart from like other Stephen King adaptations. He always kind of does carry these moments of cutting the tension and, and it existing in sort of this more almost whimsical light environment. Kind of, yeah, although Stand By Me is not really a horror movie. No, no, but... But this one, yeah. It is horrific, and it is suspenseful. It it feels more of a, a suspense thriller, though, than a straight horror. But yeah, there's yeah. A, that nice homespun element, but yeah, it gets <laughs> destroyed, though, when Buster is shot in the back. Oh, yeah. It launched Kathy Bates' career. She was virtually an unknown before this. Wins the oh, Academy okay. Award. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I thought she was on the scene. Not really. She wasn't a, a big name or anything. She may have been in other stuff. Sure, sure. Okay. Not as a star or lead or anything. She, I think she was mostly from the stage. And I think it helped James Caan stay in the public light. And it's not as if the 90s and 2000s were an endless string of hits, but no, he pops but he's up stayed and stuff. a guy for the rest of his career, really. Yeah, he's an elf. Yeah. And that's my boy. Exactly. <laughs> Our favorite movie. Bottle Rocket. Yeah. So let's... Move on to segments and step away from the snowy world of misery because we're not quite there yet. Still a lot of rain out there. Talk about when I'm really miserable. (laughs) That's misery. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing worse than cold rain. Yeah, I would much rather just be snowing now. This is gross. No, I know. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Let's start with recommendations. I think we'll keep it pretty short because we had lofty goals, yeah. obviously, if you listen to the All That Jazz episode. A shocking like turnaround time. It's crazy to me that we're recording only a couple days later and already the All That Jazz episode has been posted. Yeah, well, between editing that and preparing for this, I didn't have time to watch The Killer, which we teased that we were going to talk about. So we'll save the killer for later. It is a weird world I'm living in where David Fincher has a new movie and I'm not even dying to see it. And I don't know. I have more patience now with stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. I used to be, I have to see this immediately. Right. Because God forbid somebody asked me if I had seen it. Yes, you could say yes. Yeah. I don't know if that's really why, but. (laughs) Yeah, now it's challenging your credibility. (laughs) I did manage to finish Scott Pilgrim takes off, though, mm-hmm. and you did not, but you watched three, I believe. That's right, with This you. is the new Netflix cartoon. I thought that it was going to be a sequel to the film. It reunites the original cast members of the movie, Scott Pilgrim, to do the voices. It's sort of an anime yeah. manga style. I'm not really familiar with all that stuff. I guess that that's what you would call it. It's a lot different than I would have imagined. Same. And the first thing I would tell people before they go in, without really spoiling anything too specific, I would say the idea of it being a sequel to the original, you need to forget that, because it's not. And it's not also not a remake either. And by the end, I think it makes sense what they were going for. But there is a weird time period while you're watching it where you're thinking, why was this what they wanted to do? Yeah, I feel why that way. Why wouldn't you just make a sequel? I feel that way based on where I'm at. 
It is a sequel. Yeah. I should say it is a sequel and it is well, a remake. Elements of it being a remake too because it starts off very much like the movie. Yeah, the it's story. Re- is... It's like more of a re- it's more of a sequel slash reimagining. Yeah. would be the right way of doing it because it's the same story, but it's so different that at a certain point that it's not the same. But then you find out why. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Back to the Future or something. Okay, after they've already changed things, there's time travel involved. <laughs> I maybe not selling it. I would say that like out of ten, I'd give it like a six point five or a okay. seven. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it, but then again. I didn't really have super high hopes because I'm not a big animation guy. Same. I think it's very cool that they got the voice cast back together for a And there's movie. enough joy in it. Yeah. If you like the movie and you like the characters, there's funny jokes in it. Not everything works. There's weird stuff in it too. But overall, I'd say it's pretty enjoyable. You get to have a lot of callbacks and nods, but done differently. Like they reuse stuff from the original movie but the context is different or the person who said it is different they actually have a song about bread making you fat at one point instead of just someone saying it okay different things like that yeah, that's just yeah. one example All but right. yeah a lot they of weave in a lot nuts. of the original yeah. stuff too and then it does seem like a big part of it is to admit that times have changed and that there are some problematic elements to scott's character and ramona's character and that's all i'll say about it but if you're a fan of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, I would check out Scott Pilgrim Takes Off on Netflix. Next time, we will hopefully be able to talk a little bit about the killer at the end. Yeah. But anyway, let's move on to email. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. If you would like to send us an email of your own, you can reach us, greatestpod at gmail.com. This week's email comes from Kevin. It is a different Kevin than the one we've heard from before. Okay. Perked up for a second, but that's okay. I'm excited for this, Kevin. He's got some recommendations for us if we have a chance to check out. What's up, fellas? Just wanted to put you onto a couple of joints you may enjoy without actually requesting reviews of them. One is called Buster and Billy. 70s flick, really good movie. Used to come on TV back in the day every once in a while. Probably not available for streaming, but it's worth the effort to own the physical media. Side note, Tarantino actually discussed it on his podcast, and that's the only review or mention of it I've found. Very little coverage on this one. I'm a little biased with this one because I'm a car guy. It's called Return to Macon County, another 70s car movie very similar to Tulane Blacktop which is much more popular and definitely has a cult following. Yeah, it's in the Criterion Collection. I think Monty Hellman directed it. Return to Macon County? I'm talking about Tulane oh, Blacktop yeah, yeah. is in the Criterion okay. Collection. I'm trying to add these to my uh, watch I've list. I've seen Return to Macon County, I'm pretty sure. Okay. This one also made appearances on network TV back in the day. Buster and Billy was by far the better watch, but the other is a gem too. Keep up the good work, fellas. Look forward to listening to you guys. If I could afford it, I'd absolutely request B&B, but times are tight. Well, maybe we'll do it anyway. Who knows? So thanks for the email. We will add those to our watch list. That's the life hack to this show. Just write us an email recommending us a movie, and then we'll do it. That's the free way to get a listener request. Maybe. We have (laughs) years of stuff to get to. I'm not making any promises. However, one time we did watch The Island of Dr. Moreau just for an email. That's true. So There's ways. Yeah, you can sneak in. (laughs) (laughs) You never know what we're going to do. I can't promise anything. Right. I can't say if you email us about a movie and then 
ask us to watch it and talk about it that we would do that. I but, am always looking for random 70s flicks to check out, though, so appreciate it, Kev. Yes. Thank you for the email. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Happy Thanksgiving. Find us on X slash Twitter, at Pod. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, if you'd like to tell us a personal anecdote about a movie we've done on the show Ooh. or your own listener requests, give us some details about how those films factor into your life. Whatever you want, little stories, we'd love to read those. Greatestpod at gmail.com. You can also request a free sticker. Listener requests are also welcome. I'm not going to go through the details right now because we're going to hit a episode after episode for the rest of the year. I'm going to hammer it. So just reach out, greatestpod at gmail.com, and I will explain whatever you need to know about that. As always, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Are we ready to wrap it up? Yes, of course. <laughs> he didn't get out of the cock-a-duty car. <laughs> I like when she yells at that guy, you poop. <laughs> Just a master of insults. That's pretty good, though. Yeah, I'd say so. Being called a poop. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, thanks so much for listening. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. only one episode next week. That's what we're grateful for. That's my Thanksgiving. We're only having to do one next week. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk to you soon. Happy Thanksgiving.
beans, potatoes, tomatoes, lamb, rams, hogs, dogs, chicken, turkeys, rabbits, you name it, look! I got beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, lamb, rams, hogs, dogs, beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, chicken, turkeys, rabbits, you name it! Beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, lamb, rams, hogs, dogs, beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, chicken, turkeys, chicken, turkeys, beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, lamb, rams, hogs, dogs, beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, chicken, turkeys, rabbits, you name it! Beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, beans, creams, potatoes, tomatoes, beans, creams, beans, creams, Beans, 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 greens, potatoes, tomatoes, chicken, turkey, chicken, turkey, beans, beans, greens, potatoes, tomatoes, chicken, turkey, You name it! You name it! You name it! You name it!